Uh, my name is Brandon Smith. My family and I have been attending Ignite since uh, it started uh, pretty much uh, about almost nine years ago. Uh, it's a privilege. I work in full-time ministry with a group called Ambassadors for Christ International. I'd love to introduce my, my family to you quickly. These, they're, they're better looking and, and better people than me. So my wife, uh, Amy, we've been married 10 years. Our oldest son is Brody. He's six. Our youngest son is Beckett. He's four. I get the privilege of serving uh, Ignite on the overseer board and so serving you. And so uh, it's a privilege to serve you this morning by getting to bring the word to you. My life was radically changed when I was in college. And it was changed in part because of uh, some of God's people who lived very radically different lives. They really did live as exiles in the midst of this culture that we live in. And so as we've walked through Daniel, it's been near and dear to my heart because I was so influenced by people who live differently. And we're in this sermon series called Thriving in Exile, and we're, we're wrapping it up today. Uh, we're only going halfway through Daniel for this series. We're going to wrap it up in chapter 6 today. But we're asking the question, and we're looking at, at uh, Daniel and his example of how God did prosper him for his name's sake and for his glory. And it's brought up, I think, some, some felt needs, at least for me, and I'm guessing perhaps for you, because we live very much in a post-Christian America. And so we are finding that we have more uh, obstinance toward us as believers, and we're having to count the cost increasingly more to live as God's people. And so I don't know about you, but I've had these questions, you know, where is it that I need to really put my foot down and stand and, and suffer the consequences? What, when is it that I just, I can't, in this, is this scenario so clear that I can't disobey God? Well, you never want to disobey God, but where is it clear that this would be disobedient to God, and so I just need to stand my ground? When is it, when, when can I participate and when can I not? Or is there a way I can participate that still honors God, right? We're, we're asking these questions. And so I think looking at Daniel, who is this godly man who is set in this, he lives through numerous empires and wicked kings, we see a little bit how he does that. And I think that that has been helpful for me and I hope also for you. Last week, Chase preached on a very famous passage. He did a great job. If you haven't listened to it, I encourage you to go listen to it, and, and he preached on the handwriting on the wall. And just to, to briefly give you a summary, or the, the main point that we could take away from this, or that I took away from it, is, is this, that even though we live in a culture, and Christians have always lived in cultures that, are, that do not obey God, do not ultimately love Him, in fact, they hate Him, that while God allows these rulers or these cultures to, to have some dominion and authority, now ultimately he's over them. It's comforting to me that Jesus is the blessed and only sovereign, says in the New Testament. I love this out of, out of 2 Thessalonians 2.8. This, this is great for my heart, hopefully for you as well. It says this, and then the lawless one will be revealed, referring to the Antichrist, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the splendor of his coming. So Jesus shows up, gone. The splendor of his showing up on the scene is enough to, to bring this evil, the lawless one, to nothing. 
And so that's encouraging to us. God is sovereign, even when there is uh, wickedness that has some authority. And so this morning, we're going to look at another famous passage. We're going to look at Daniel in the lion's den. It's famous, right? Especially because we teach it to our kids. And it's, and it's a great passage to teach to our kids. Because what we're usually, when it's taught to kids, we're trying to explain that God is able. He can overcome what to a kid's mind is, is scary and strong and powerful, and that's a lion, right? And God is more able, and, and, and it's a great passage to walk through with our kids. But we're going to go beyond the kids' story this morning because there are more sinister things going on behind the scenes, and God has even a grander plan than just, although he does deliver Daniel and prosper him, he has a grander plan. But before we jump in, I want to lay by way of introduction a couple things at your feet, all right? I want to explain a couple things. Here's the first one. I want you to, to see and understand with a little greater clarity the supernatural worldview of the ancient world or the ancient Jew. All right? They had a perception that was very real that, that actually we as Americans tend not to grasp real well, and that's that there's, there's real spiritual uh, evil that exists. Let me read for you Ephesians 6, 12. Okay, track with me here. It says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Now, you see it in this passage and also in others. When we translate some of these words from Greek, like authorities, there's, it's referring to spiritual beings, but there's a geographic component to it. In other words, on earth, there are evil spiritual beings who have a influence or dominion over certain areas. And this makes sense. You know, uh, demonic forces are not omnipresent. They're not everywhere. But they, they have a, an influence or a rule and a reign. Let me give you just another example. There's many more that I'm going to give you here. But if, if you've read ahead in Daniel, you come to chapter 10 and Daniel is uh, praying. He's asking, he's seeking the Lord diligently and the Lord sends an angel. An angel says this to him, says this to Daniel. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. He's saying the, 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 the prince of the kingdom of Persia, an evil, evil demonic force, held him up from being able to get to Daniel, and Michael, uh, you know, the archangel Michael, came and helped get him through. All right, this is, this is a world that we often don't grasp. It's a little abstract for us, but it's real. Geographically, evil has, has some dominion and reign. And God, his plan from beginning and end is to, is to set his people in the midst of that. So that's why we're called exiles. We're, we're living in the midst of that, and we're to display his glory. So that's the first thing I want to point out. And the second is this. I want to take Daniel in the context of the whole scriptures, right? We've looked at, we're coming up on six chapters this week. And so we're going to take chapter 6 in light of Daniel. We're going to take Daniel in light of the, the, the scriptures. And that's this. From the beginning to the end, God has had a plan to make his name famous for his glory to be displayed throughout the world and throughout the earth. This is good news for us. It's not, it's not just uh, you know, God's arrogant and displaying. No, we were created to worship. 
And the only thing that can satisfy our hearts and souls is God himself. We spend a lot of time, and before we come to Christ, that's all we do is we find other things to worship to try and fill our hearts, and it doesn't work. And so God displaying his greatness and his magnitude and his glory is what we need. It, it, it's in his best interest and ours. Let me give you a few examples of how he has done this. Let me just walk through a few throughout the Bible. All right, in Genesis 1, it says he creates man and woman in his own image. All right, So we uniquely bear God's image differently than a sparrow. We're more valuable than sparrows. And he says this, fill the whole earth and subdue it. He says this to Adam and Eve. In other words, have babies, procreate, and go over the earth. Take my image that you bear, the glory that you reflect, and display it to the whole earth. It's part of his plan. It's why when we come to Genesis 10 in the Tower of Babel, it's such a big deal that God, or it's why God acts so decisively. If you remember the Tower of Babel, this is what they do. This is verse 4. It says, the people said, you know, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they do what people have always done. They say, God, you know, we don't really want to live for your glory. We want to live for ours. So we're going to stay here, not disperse. We're going to build a monument to our greatness. And we're going to worship other gods, essentially. God says, no, nah, it's not going to happen. He, he you know, changes their languages and, and forces them to disperse. I'll give you a couple more examples. You ever wonder, like, why is God slow to anger? It's in his character and in his nature. It benefits us greatly. But in Isaiah 48, verse 9, it says this, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. You ever wonder, why is God with us? Yeah, there's a component where he loves us, and so he is with us. But there's another aspect, even a more foundational aspect. 1 Samuel 12, it says this, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Why does God forgive us? In Isaiah 43, it says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own name's sake. And I will remember, your, remember not your sins. Why are we commanded to be hospitable? Right? That's what fall kickoff is going to be. We're going to seek to minister to our community, and you're going to get an, get an invite uh, in, your, in your bulletin. I invite you to, or ask you to, to, get, to invite someone with that. Why are we hospitable? In Romans 15, 7, it says this, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We practice hospitality for, hospitality for the glory of God. Let me just the last one. Jesus and his sufferings. Why, like, why and what does he have in view even in his sufferings? He says this in John 12. He says, my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I'll glorify it again. And so God, there's many more examples in this, but God from beginning to end, Genesis to, to Revelation, has had a plan for his name and his glory to be displayed throughout the earth. And when we come to the book of Daniel, we see this uniquely in the two main ways for us as people that God will do this, to use some broad categories. One is, at times, he will not prosper his people for his glory. In other words, the reason Daniel is in Babylon and the Israelites have been removed from their land is God is disciplining them for their wickedness and their sin. 
And so God is going to glorify his name even in disciplining his people and even after their failure. But then the other side of it, and this is what we've seen, especially when we look at Daniel as a person, is that he has really prospered. By the time we come to where we're going to look this morning, he's in his 80s at the time he goes into the lion's den. He's lived through multiple kings who are wicked, multiple kingdoms, and largely he has prospered. So let's jump into the passage. I'm going to read most of it right away here. Um, You could follow along on the screen behind me. It says this, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Now they make a a very huge mistake right here. They're they're in a sense going to be picking a fight beyond just Daniel and with this God, and I'll explain that, and we'll get to that in a second. But to continue on. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the priests, uh, or the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. They then came near and said to the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you've signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king uh, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Now, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians, no, no injunction or ordinance that the king established can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord's that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. 
Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found in him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. We're going to stop there for now. I'll read the last part at the end. So to give you a, a, a background, just briefly, if you, if you missed last week, a new kingdom has come in to Babylon. The Persians and the Medes have overthrown the Babylonians. And ironically, they decide to keep Daniel over, the king decides to keep Daniel over as a high official. Normally, when a kingdom comes in, you just wipe everybody out and kill them. And I imagine probably what led to this is that the Persians and the Medes, one, yes, they saw how talented Daniel was, but also realized he's not really one of them. He's not really a Babylonian. He serves a different God, is devout in his service of this other God from their perspective. And so the king, for whatever, you know, those two things combined decides that he's going to keep him. But not only is he going to keep him, right, he's going to make him kind of just below him, the head of the head. And this arouses the jealousy uh, of the others. And while I'm sure that there is a sense of a personal jealousy between them and Daniel, I want to suggest to you that it's gonna, it goes beyond that. You see, when the Persians come in, they have just conquered mighty Babylon. They're excited about, they believe, they trust in their gods, their religion. And here's this other guy who is monotheistic, believes in one God, and there's none other. That's offensive to them. And he's, he's an exile from Judah. He's this, he's this in, in, in their minds, this wimpy Jew. They can't even sustain their kingdom, not knowing that God gives every kingdom its rule and reign and, and has his purpose and his ultimate control. And so what is happening is, yes, there's something between them and, and him, but it's more. It's the, the system of belief and religion versus Daniel's. There's even behind the Persian religion, there are spiritual forces that have even geographic reign and influence. And they make uh, a big mistake. They decide to lie about it, to go about it. They say all the, the satraps and prefects are in on this. You can almost imagine Daniel over there going, uh, I'm not in on this, O king. Right? They leave him, him out. And I want to suggest to you, or point out to you, rather, that Daniel takes this as a bit of a challenge. And I say that because how he responds and the options that are legitimately available on the table. All right, throughout uh, Christian history, or God, you know, God's people when we're in exile, sometimes we go underground. I don't know if you've heard about like the underground church in different persecuted places where, yeah, there are things you do or, or don't do in public. They're, they're, they're right, there becomes a line where, yeah, if, if you're forced to cross that, you give up your life for it. But there are sometimes things, you, you, you meet for secret church services. There, there are Christians in China right now, well, not right now because of the time frame probably, but like on Sunday morning, meeting in secret to worship Jesus. And that's a smart and good thing. See, here's some of the options that Daniel has. He finds out that this edict is signed, and he goes straight back home, and he goes up to his upper room, 
where he prays in an open window facing Jerusalem, and he still does it. But legitimately, he doesn't have to. Right? It's, the, the edict is that, you can't, is that you have to pray to the king. All right? He can hide his prayers to God in secret to a degree and for a while. Right? He could just shut the windows and continue praying. That'd be an option. He could go downstairs and pray. He could change, uh, I'm just giving you a few examples, he could change from praying three times a day to twice a day before dawn and after dusk. No one's, there's, last I know, there's no, there were no streetlights in Babylon this long ago. They're not going to see him or find him. He could, you know, if he wanted to say, I want to keep my praying three times a week, he could go on a prayer walk, walk around the city and pray in his head. And if someone asked Daniel, what are you doing? He could say, I'm going for a walk. It's not a lie. Just because someone asks you a question doesn't mean you have to answer it all. But Daniel is not concerned with his self-preservation or comfort, and instead of taking some legitimate routes out, he, he really throws down the gauntlet and says, okay, I am going to make a public demonstration of my displeasure at this, and if God decides to deliver me, great. If he's going to glorify me from delivering me from the lions, great. But if he decides not to deliver me and he's going to glorify himself by me standing my ground and giving my life because I believe and want to obey him, also great. Let me, let me kind of cross-reference this for you. There's another famous Bible character, a story that we tell our kids a lot, and he has a similar attitude, and I want you to, I want you to see it as I, as I uh, point it out for you. This is David and Goliath. You ever wonder what motivates David to do what he does with Goliath? Let me point these things out. So this is 1 Samuel 17 to set the, the picture for you. Goliath and the Philistine armies are coming out, and Goliath comes out each day and, and taunts the Israel army, and, and uh, he says this, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. All right, David is not in the army. He's young. He's a shepherd boy. His dad sends him to bring some provisions for his brothers who are in the army. And he shows up, and he hears this, and this is his response. He goes, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. The living God's armies. Who is this guy who doesn't bear the mark of God's people? He's a part of a different, he honors different deities and spiritual beings. Who is this guy that he, defy, that he should defy the armies of the living God? It gets his dander up. Right? Somehow... People hear what he says, and he's brought to King Saul, and he gives his sales pitch in a sense of why they should let him go out there because it looks ridiculous. He says this to King Saul. He says, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Why is Goliath going to be delivered? A, a nine-foot giant who has fought from his youth, is very experienced. Why is he going to be delivered to a shepherd boy? Because he has picked a fight with God and his armies. That's why he's going to get delivered. And then he, he walks out in front of Goliath, and this is what he says to him. Talk about courage. He says to Goliath, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the army of Israel, whom you have defied. You've defied the God 
of the armies of Israel. And then he says this, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I'll strike you down and cut off your head. That also doesn't make the kids stories, although I think it's pretty darn neat. Honestly, he's going to show up with a, he tells the guy, I'm going to show up with a, with a, a sling and a stone. I'm going to knock you out and then I'm going to take your own sword, cut off your head and bring it back. That's pretty courageous. And he says, I'll give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. Now check this out. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. We hear in the kids' story about David and Goliath, uh, be like David and go fight your giants. Uh, David is upset that this guy is is defying God and dishonoring God. And he says, God, the reason that God is going to help me to accomplish killing you, Goliath, is because he wants his name and his fame to be spread throughout the earth, that the whole earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And he says, for the battle is the Lord's, and he'll give you into my hand. God's going to uphold his name. So David knows we see in this passage that God's going to deliver. Remember a few weeks ago uh, when, we, when we heard about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They also knew God was going to deliver them from the fiery furnace. They say that. We don't have to respond to you in this matter, O king. The God we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery, fiery furnace, and he will. And they give the famous statement, but if he does not, we won't bow down and, and serve your, 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 you and your statue. But they say he will. They both know. Daniel 6 does not tell us that Daniel knows that God is going to deliver him. He doesn't know. And so Daniel is throwing down the gauntlet and allowing God to decide how he's going to deliver him. He could stand his ground and be martyred, and that will bring glory to God. He could suffer, or he could be delivered. And God's people throughout history have done this. And we say along with Paul, and this is, I think this is most easily summarized in Philippians 1.20, and Paul says this, It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Daniel is about to join a long list of heroes of the faith who have had a similar mindset. I want to read to you and point out in two pieces from Hebrews 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith, verses 32 to 40, the two ways that God does this. And the first one, as I read it, and if you think about yourself and having faith and trust in God, you go, yeah, I want to have faith and see these results. It's going to be like, yeah. And the second half is going to make you uncomfortable. Because you're going to go, "Uh, Lord, that's not the way I I would most likely choose to glorify you. So let let me read. He before this, he's giving a list of, of a number of, of heroes of the faith and how they had faith. And then he comes to verse 32 and says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith, here's, now we're getting the list, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, here's our Daniel, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness. I don't know about you, I want to be made strong out of weakness. Became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women even received back their dead by resurrection. All right, let's just stop there, right? We go, yeah, I want to have faith and see great things like that. But then check this out. Here's the other half. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. They might gain 
or rising into a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. And we go, whoa. These same people, two very different results. Some, some of these people experienced both in their lifetime. God used their faith to defeat perhaps uh, a foreign invading army trying to kill his people, and yet later they were martyred a, a brutal death. God does both. It says, the, it says of whom, later it says, of whom the world was not worthy. And it says, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They're in the list. They're being recommended to us that by faith, they either God used them for, for great prospering and deliver us, and by faith, sometimes he didn't prosper them and didn't deliver them, and it would still glorify him. And so Daniel, knowing you know, many of these stories before his time, finds himself in this situation and saying, all right, Lord, I'm going to follow you and I'm going to let you decide what the outcome will be. I trust that you are able to deliver me. But if you don't, I also trust that you know what you're doing. And this is the part of the story. For us to have faith, it's very applicable for us. We do need to believe that God is able. This is where the aspect of the kid's story is helpful for us. Right? King Darius shows up the next morning and, and looks down into the pit where the lions are, and he says, yells to Daniel, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the mouth of the lions? He doesn't know. And if we're honest, as much as we intellectually know God is able and that he can do more than we ever ask or imagine, in our day-to-day -day life, if you're like me, there are things that happen where I, where I'll just say this, we regularly fail to trust that God is able. I was recently, just in the last uh, couple weeks, made aware of a, of a situation that needed counseling. He had two parties. Uh, the relationship is really rocky. It's ending. And I was giving my input, and I said, you know, I think, I think you should go find a pastor or fi find a, a believer who can handle the word of God, who has the spirit of God within them, and bring your situation before them, and, and by faith, allow God to, to work and try and work on this. And, and more or less, the response was, I don't believe, the other party is so bad, I don't believe that that's even possible. And I said, you might go to counseling, perhaps, and it might not get resolved because the person could be opposite, but, but you don't even trust that God's able. But Daniel, when he goes up to his upper chamber and prays publicly like he always says, he trusts that God is able. Because it says this in verse 23. You know, so Daniel's taken up out of the den. No kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. God stopped the lion's mouths. And in, in, in case you're wondering, like, and you want to have some pushback, or I'm sure people at times over history have pushed back and said, well, maybe the lions just weren't hungry. You know, maybe six fat zebras fell in the top of the pit the day before and they're full. Well, he points out and says this, you know, the king overreacts and he commands that the men who had maliciously accused Daniel, uh, he, he overreacts and he throws them in and their wives and their kids. And it says this, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. They're pretty hungry. 
I don't know if you're up to date on your, your National Geographic and Animal Planet viewership of lions and how they hunt, but let me just remind you, right, the lionesses go out, usually a few of them, they take down an animal, and if you notice this, this is not part of this, this is not for the kids' story, it's a little graphic, but they grab their victim, right, by the throat, and they basically, what they do is they crunch their windpipe and suffocate them. And while they hold it still, and one does that, now one's done, oh, dead, now it's time to feast. So these lions are actually so ravenously hungry that they're going outside of their natural disposition of how they go about acquiring food. And they crush their bones to pieces. See, God really did deliver Daniel. And the question this morning, I don't know exactly what you're facing, but I know you're a human being on planet Earth, so you're facing something. Do you honestly believe God is able to deliver you from what you face? Not a guarantee that he will act necessarily in X, Y, or Z. You know, David and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew God would deliver. But most of the time when we pray for things like healing for people who are sick, we have a desire and we, and we rightly seek and pray to God because God answers prayer and he uses our prayers to shape history. But generally, we don't know what he's going to do. Do you believe he's able so that you even enter into prayer or enter into the situation? But on the flip side, let me ask you this. Do you believe if he doesn't that he's able to sustain you? I'm going to sound like a bit of a broken record for, for those of you who know me. I have a special needs son. He's, he's very disabled. At one point, we will bury him. We'll outlive him. And I met in our journey two kinds of Christians when we found out how serious his medical needs were going to be and what was going to happen. I met, we met two kinds of Christians. One, who looked, people who looked at the situation, and this was most people, and you could tell they almost had kind of like a, a panic where they would say, I'm going to pray that he's going to be healed. But they would say it in a way that you could tell they didn't have hope for the situation unless he was healed. In other words, like, this is so bad, unless he's healed, I don't know what to tell you. And then there were Christians who, who were pretty grounded theologically, had, had matured, had been through some suffering, and they would say, you know what, we're going to pray that your son is healed. But they would say, and sometimes they'd even verbalize it, you know what, and even if he is not, and you have to walk this journey, God is sufficient. He's with you, he'll take care of you, and he's sufficient even if he chooses not to heal him. I'd say four years later, our son has not been miraculously healed, and he has been sufficient. And ultimately, it was for God to choose. We can put our requests before him, but it was for God to choose. And so can we believe that God is able, but leave in some of these circumstances the final decision to him and trust him? God, you're good, even if there's suffering. As we close out our series here in Daniel, Thriving in Exile, and close out chapter 6 this morning, I want you just to imagine something totally crazy and what would seem utterly impossible. I want you to imagine... Uh, our president or our previous president, calling a uh, news conference and then showing up and, and saying, you know what, one of my cabinet members has followed Jesus and uh, I've been impacted by that. I need to tell you about him. <laughs> Can you imagine one of our last two presidents doing that and then reading and stating what King Darius says? This is the last part of the chapter, all right? After he sees Daniel delivered, 
he sends an edict out to his whole kingdom. And here's what he says. Imagine if our president said this. Said, Peace multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal uh, dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall, ha- shall be to the end. He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. When I said at the beginning that God has this plan from Genesis to Revelation to make his name and his fame known, it is so shocking to me that his people disobey, are sent into exile, and then God still uses a man's faithfulness to get the news out about who he really is to a, to a pagan kingdom. That is awesome. Can we join in with a, with, a, with a heart to see God's name proclaimed? Perhaps you've heard or remember the Chris Tomlin song, Not to Us, Not to Us, but to Your Name be the Glory. That's Psalm 115.1. It's pretty literal. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory. He copied it. It's a smart move. Just say the scriptures. This morning, as we look at our, our problems and our needs, can we see them in light of the grander purpose for them to make God famous or known? Let me read to you uh, 1 Peter 2.9. It says, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why do you exist? You wonder, if you showed up today, why was I born? Why do I exist? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you come to know Christ. Chapter 6 ends with this statement. This is, this is verse 28. It says, So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. We see that not everybody prospers all the time. God did chose or choose to prosper Daniel. I just want to leave you with this last thought. There was another servant of the Lord who cried out at one point for deliverance. You could say to be prospered, to be delivered. It was Jesus. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's looking down the barrel of what the crucifixion is going to be and how awful it's going to be. And he says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. But then he says this, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I'm really thankful that God chose to glorify himself and Jesus chose to submit to letting his, having his father glorify himself through his death and resurrection versus getting out of it. Our lives have been changed because of that. Let me pray.